And it really is a fundamental question about who makes these kinds of decisions. Congress supported charter school, period. Now the Department of Education, which is just an administrative agency, nobody elected them, nobody voted for them. Now they're saying, actually, we don't like them, so we're gonna just change the rules. Welcome to In Piazza. I'm Jeannie Allen. It's been a long time since we have chatted. Uh, a few months, lots has happened. And before we come to you with our first back to school show of 2022, I want to bring in uh, my co-conspirator in education, freedom, policy and innovation, Michael Musanti. Great to be back on the show. Thank you, Jeannie. So Michael, we are about to talk to two people who are leading the charge to sue the Biden administration over the rules governing the charter school grant program in the federal government. And so before we bring in Dan and Caleb, Dan from the Michigan Association of Public School Academies or charter schools, uh, and Caleb Krukenberg from the Pacific Legal Foundation, I just want to make sure that we level set for the audience what's actually been happening. So so jump in and, and explain a little bit what happened back in the winter and early spring that would have caused charter schools to want to sue a once friendly administration. Well, yes, uh, it, back in March 14, 2022, the Biden administration released uh, proposed regulations that everyone could comment on. Everyone had a month, but as always, the case, had a month, to, had a month to, to respond with comments. All right, well, wait, wait, you're a Washington veteran. Is yeah. that normal? It's normal if it's not 5,000 pages of new regulations, uh, which is the point I was going to make. At the end of the day, um, if it's something two or three pages, it's a minor change. Okay, great. We have a month. We'll look at it. Uh, the extent of these regulations uh, on the charter school program, uh, on the charter school program grant, on the CMO grants, uh, it it this this wasn't this was a massive sea change. This was not oh let's let's change a couple of words here and there to make things easier or smoother. This was a fundamental change in the way those funds were going to be dispersed. Um, and just one month, no, sorry, not it's it wasn't a sufficient time. And then of course, all oh, the Biden administration said, okay, okay, we'll give you five more days. Um, sorry, it's actually four. So they went from the 14th to the 18th. Um, and, and thank you so much for that gracious uh, stay of execution of four days. Um, but oh, wait, let's explain though. So then 30,000 comments or more came in during that period of time, the majority of which opposed the introduction of these new regs. Now get like, let's bring it down to normal people's level because normal people don't work in regulations all the time and don't realize what the federal government has the power to do. It was the string. So, so charter schools back in the 90s, began to be able to apply through their states for these kind of block grants to help them start up. Started during President Clinton. Clinton, right, thank you. That's right? exactly what I was wanted 3,000 new charter schools in his, during his administration. Incentive grant program, bipartisan support. 
Republicans and Democrats, let's give a little money out. Let's incentivize these new innovative neighborhood schools. Yes. And then over every year, the advocates would go to Washington, ask for more. Right. So with more money, go ahead. And, and, and which continued to be supported increases in funding through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, two terms of the Obama administration. Um, so to your point, again, bipartisan support, never a, a, a comment or question about, oh, is, you know, how is this program running? Obviously, there, were, there was transparency in it. It was straightforward. The money went straight to schools. It just it was what they were doing was a good use of Americans tax dollars to support something that had come along. Charter schools. Well, give better and, options to low income and medium income and high income families. Just right. diversity and, op- and options. Right. But also right. because the money was there also because it was closing a gap because charter schools in most states don't get any kind of meaningful facilities funds. Operationally, they typically get less. It's kind of a devil's bargain in states. So they're getting less. Federal government's going to help incentivize them because you and I go to start a business or an organization. It takes time. You got to hire a lawyer for your C3. You have to write your proposal. Someone has to help you through it. You may be the best educator, school leader, entrepreneur, but, you know, that takes funds. So those startup funds were Part of that, as well as once they got approved, get the building, get the furniture, get the people in the door to start designing the curriculum. Okay, great. And and let's say you're not some big charter network like everybody knows about today. You needed that. But but hold on, you before you got to the Bush administration, Obama administration, actually it was during President George Bush's administration that even some of our well-meaning friends unintentionally um, and maybe naively added some regulations. So they started to add on, you know, what do they say? He who pays the piper. Well, yeah, he who holds the gold makes the, or he who makes the, has the gold makes the rules. Right. And, or and anytime you start to. Plays the tune. Plays the tune. Yeah, the so piper plays the, the money tune. that federal government was spending did begin to have strings and, and some of the charter advocates would go, oh, would they, would they go, they'd go up the hill and opponents would say. Well, if those schools were just as accountable as traditional public schools, never mind that they are more accountable. And then advocates would be like, okay, great, we can build in some accountability. And all of a sudden there was not accountability just for results, which were already happening first and foremost with parents, secondly, the demand, third with test scores. But, oh, well, you know, here's more paperwork to jump through and here's more hoops. And so the programs got more expensive because the federal government was demanding that states demand that they become more bureaucratic, the charter blob, we used to call it. Yes. And any time, I think there's there's also a saying that says uh, for every year that a government program is in existence, you can multiply by two the number of regulations that are going to be added on top of the program that exists. So, right. yes. Right. Yeah, and this is something that, you know, libertarians, many who we know and love, have often said, like, the minute you throw in the feds, you know, well-meaning programs, we have to feed people who don't have it. We want to be supportive of disadvantaged communities. The purpose of education dollars, the federal government really historically has been to uh, support those who are not well supported. Right. Right. But that's where the regulations were supposed to be important to guard health, safety, civil rights 
et cetera, not to tell a teacher who started a new arts-based charter school what paperwork to file, who to hire, who to put on her board, and when to jump through hoops. Uh, and, and and also to rig, rig, which is what the government in these, not to get too far down in the weeds with, with the regs, rig the way that you are designing your school so that you can't serve the students who actually need to be served. Right. People come to Washington, D.C. They are not starting charter schools in Ward 3. For those of you who don't know Ward 3, one of the wealthier sections of Washington, D.C., there's one charter school in it. It's actually just a small program that's uh, connected to the main charter school. All of the charter school campuses are located in low-income neighborhoods serving the population that those founders wanted to serve because those are the children that are being left behind. Um, and that's the point. Uh, we are trying to put forward a, an educational choice to parents who've never had them before. So for the government to say, oh, we're happy to give you dollars, but we're going to dictate to you what your school is going to look like because that's out in our power is just fundamentally wrong. So back in May, uh, well, in April, we commented at the heart of the Biden administration regulations. So this evolution, we have support through Bush, through Obama, and even Joe Biden, when he was a senator, supported this stuff. But you do have like, I don't know, 25 former union leaders are now running the Department of Education. So um, with all due respect to Education Secretary Cordona, that's kind of who is um, running the store. They well, take that's who wrote these. That's who wrote these, of course. And we know that because they practically are identical to the NEA playbook, the AFT playbook, things yeah. that Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers or the biggest, most strident union boss against innovative public schools and, and education providers basically said, we're going to make sure that those charter schools, um, you know, get controlled because you know, they're creating competition. Uh, never mind, by the way, that who was open more during COVID, Michael? Charter schools and private schools. Amazing, right? They didn't, they weren't leaving kids behind. No. Uh, they're still not, you know, right now we're, we have another union strike, what, in Ohio? Uh, Columbus, Ohio and Philadelphia. And Philadelphia. So, so anyway, they're running around doing that stuff. Charter schools are serving kids and um, so are a lot of innovative traditional public schools, but um, they operate more like charters. So in any event, you know, so we, we comment on these regulations. We comment loads of parents who care deeply about their charter schools in their neighborhoods come to Washington. They, they go up and protest in front, lots of speeches, lots of marches, lots of visits to senators' offices, members of the House of Representatives. We see a little bit of backpedaling, a little bit. Well, they, this is the problem. There was some language changed. At the end of the day, here's where I'd push back. We have a lot of people saying, oh, all of that had a beneficial result. All they did is change a few words, but the intent is the same. It's to kill charter schools. So in these thousands of pages of regulations, 135 pages, um, literally thousands of new small and large rules, they are expecting that as a condition to receive federal funds, charter schools have to report how they're engaging communities, how they're recruiting people, and essentially 
They have to demonstrate. Whenever you have to demonstrate to the federal government you're doing something they want, the assumption is there's someone sitting in Washington going, oh, that's great. Um, uh, you know, CER Charter School, Michael Musanti Charter School, you are uh, looking at this neighborhood. You sent a really nice note. That's awesome. No, the regulators have nothing else to do but regulate. They'll take it in and they'll find fault. Right. Basically gives them a way to say you are not complying with X, Y, Z. It gives, it gives opponents leverage whenever there's additional requirements in place, which have the net effect, if you're not a large, well-funded bureaucracy, of saying, I don't want to deal with this. I don't have the money or the time or resources. I just thought I was serving kids. Right, right. It is not only it is the opponents look at it, but it's also it's it's putting it into a the judgment into the hands of a bureaucrat who probably has never been in a charter school. They have no idea what goes on in a charter school. And it's up to them to judge whether you've demonstrated or not by checking boxes, right? And and putting it into their words. Well, if you don't do that, then they can say, to your point, no, I'm sorry, you didn't demonstrate. And so we're going to have to deny you right. the charter school program grant. So they have to, for example, demonstrate unmet demand for the charter. Um, so just having kids on waiting lists wouldn't be enough. They have to actually uh, solicit input about how the charter school impacts the community and um, forget about whether parents want this or not. There's no mention really of parents. They want to go to people who have no interest in the proliferation of charter schools and say, what do you think of our charter school opening? Yes, exactly. And, and most of the time, your most strident vocal people in that case in neighborhoods are the small cadre of opponents who make their voices heard uh, very loudly uh, to elected officials, to whomever controls the process. And what you're going to get is feedbacks of saying, oh, no, no, we don't need them here. Why would we want them here? Why do we need them here when most parents are going to say, oh, God, please open and get my son or daughter in there. And and, the, and what cracks me up about that is, to your earlier point, most charter schools open up, they fill up very quickly and they have wait lists. If they don't, they're bad and they close. OK, great. And there's your level of accountability, not someone sitting at the Department of Education headquarters in Washington ticking boxes off saying, oh, there's demand because oh okay great thank you and they're checking well, well and so part of this is there you know exactly uh, uh, you know this goes back to ted coldery the consider the godfather of charter schools uh, uh minnesota uh, academic researcher and just thoughtful thoughtful um man who made the point years ago that charter schools broke up the exclusive franchise um, of public education and that exclusive franchise, meaning districts decide what's done with schools, not teachers and individuals and parents. This is a demand for returning to that exclusive franchise because all the priorities are like, let's mandate collaboration. You have got to show how you're going to collaborate. You have to prove how you're going to use the community's assets on behalf of your kids. Who, who says to a traditional public school, how are you using the community assets? Who's holding them responsible? for folks going, you know, on strike in Ohio or for the fact that learning loss 
you know, forget COVID's impact on families. What did traditional public education do to mitigate that learning loss? Well, and, and not only that, but it's actually worse because at least in that sense, you are controlled at the local level. Charter schools are local entities. They're local education agencies in and of themselves. And now you it's not even state players who are saying, what have you done? Or they're, or they're boards that actually oh, you know, approve them, monitor them, and close them if necessary. Now you're putting the hands into Washington, D.C. So once yeah. again, now you're two steps removed and you have nameless, faceless bureaucrats in Washington now saying, how are you discussing with your community? But at the end of the day, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, which is the word choice, right? We hear choice in every other aspect of our lives. I'm fighting for my choice for this. I'm fighting for my choice for that. But when it comes to school and schools and education, all of a sudden you hit a brick wall that's thicker and bigger than anything you've ever hit and say, no, no, no. This should all be handled by Washington. It should all be mandated and dictated from the top down. And every kid is the same. And let's just do it this way. Uh, it's it's absolutely shocking that we allow it to continue. And to your point, yes, state charter school laws are written by state legislators who inevitably are closer to the charter schools that they're actually looking at governing, right? And so right. when they write them, they probably wrote them because they wanted their state to be involved in offering more choices to the very parents whom are not getting served by their tax dollars that have to go to a bureaucracy first, yeah. wasted through that and then filtered down, right? So now, again, we're, we're removing the local, the state aspects of it and turning back over to the, to the government to say when and where charter schools should be able to open. And the thing is, and thank you again, Michael Masanti, uh, Executive Vice President, CER, uh, and uh, Managing Director of the YAS Prize alongside our team. Listen, thank you for helping set the table because it's not just whether control is local, because local control doesn't mean anything unless there really is control. It's whether a parent has the right to make the decision, as you just said, that choice, a fundamental choice about where and how little Susie and Betty and Jose and Star are educated and where what they need when they need it. And charters were providing those critical options in 44 states plus the District of Columbia and over 7,800 charter schools serving three and a half million kids and doing so swimmingly. And the speaking of swimming, the traditional public schools are drowning in their weight and and lethargy. And so what's their best response? You know, they know that most of us don't have time to have conversations like this and explain the fundamental sound bites and, and arcane policy battles. They just start, you know, putting the screws to charters through regulations. Thank God we have Dan Cuisenberry at the Mission Association of Public School Academies and his colleague from Pacific Legal Foundation that are suing over it because someone should do that. You know what? Grassroots is great. You know, we're big fans of that. It didn't have as much impact as we'd like. In fact, it had very little. And it's it's critical wake up call. So this conversation is um, super overdue. And I'm excited that we're going to turn to them and uh, chat with them. So thanks for helping me explain it to our audience. Michael, any last words? Uh, no, I just when I saw the name behind the lawsuit, I thought we're in good shape. 
anybody else but Dan, I'd, I'd be worried. But uh, he, he's been there around for a long time and and glad to see that Michigan, as it usually does, is right up front leading uh, on behalf of the parents of the of the charter school group, not just in Michigan, but across the United States. Thank you. And on that note, we will turn to our guests. So I'm super pleased to be joined, uh, as I said earlier in our conversation with Dan Quisenberry, the president of MAPSA. MAPSA is the Michigan Association of Public School Academies, aka Charters. It's a statewide movement of charter school stakeholders that for over 20 years has led the charge for um, children's and parents' right to have a great education and teachers' autonomy to deliver that education. Dan is a leader not only in the state, uh, but nationwide is uh, among the best. So welcome, Dan, to the show. Jeannie, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for calling attention to this important topic. Oh, I can't wait to get into it. And especially with Caleb Kruckenberg, an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is an organization deeply devoted to individual liberty uh, that believes when people are free to live peacefully and productively without interference by government, they improve themselves, their families, and their communities. Like, who could argue with that? Um, Caleb defends the right uh, to do so as a, as a prosecutor, has been a public defender, a lobbyist for advocacy groups, um, and has all the bells and whistles and degrees that you could possibly need to do this. So I was fascinated, delighted, and grateful when I read that you two teamed up also with our friends from the Fordham Institute in Ohio to sue the Biden administration over the regulations uh, that would seriously impede charters. So Dan, let me go to you first. What, what's happening? Tell, tell the audience what's going on. Yeah, thank you, Jeannie. And um, I'm going to give the summary piece because it's really not, and Caleb may cringe at this, it's just not that complicated. <laughs> this is a grant that was established by Congress way back in the Clinton administration for the sole purpose of helping capitalize founding groups that want to start a charter school. We know certainly now that when they start healthy, they succeed. Simple concept. And you you go through a process. Uh, the states apply to the feds. The feds uh, grant to states, and they can work with founding groups to set up charter schools. Well, they've the Biden administration is the first president and administration that has not supported charter public schools. And they're keeping good on their promise by adding rules and regulations that frankly aren't about the rules and regulations or their intent. It's about harassment and making it more and more difficult for these grants to be used. So we did, we, we were already having some challenges, Jeannie, we can get into some of that, but basically when the when these came in and they did revise them and release them over the 4th of July weekend, we said, okay, enough is enough. This isn't going to get better. Now's the time. We're going to call it out. We're going to sue the administration because they've broken the law. Yeah, and I do want to get into, um, when we come back to you, how even just the suggestion of these regulations started making states act that way, which a lot of people just don't get. And you get into that sort of, you know, very, very complicated policy stuff um, that, you know, no one should have to worry about. But let's bring in Caleb. So um, you looked at this case, if you will, you decided there was a case. Why is there a case? Why didn't the Biden administration have every right to do this on their own? What makes it illegal? Well, and first of all, thank you for um, having me as part of this conversation. You know, as Dan said, it's actually not that complicated. Um, and I, I say that, and this is kind of nuts from someone who's a lawyer, but it, it it's really not. You know, the, the charter school program 
that was set up by Congress just allocates the money. It's supposed to go to high quality programs. Those are the ones that are academically successful. That's it. The, the new rule, though, and what the Biden administration has done is they said, actually, we have the power to set new conditions. We can require a bunch of new hoops to jump through. We can require a new application. And in fact, we can disadvantage applicants um, for a variety of reasons. And we'll give you some reasons that actually um, seem to harm the schools that are doing the best job and serving the most needy students. But there's no provision in the law that allows the Department of Education to do this. I mean, Congress didn't say the department can can set up new rules. They said the opposite. They said the department has to give the money. Um, and so really, that's that's as simple as it is, where the department is interfering with Congress's very clear wishes on this. And those clear wishes just to kind of get a little deeper into it, is the proliferation, to Dan's point earlier about the creation of this program, the proliferation of successful charter schools, by the way, however the states define that, which could be different from Michigan to California to Delaware, right? And it is the state's responsibility and obligation to use those funds to help schools succeed. Right. And Congress actually was very clear in, in something that's kind of unusual. They wrote in the law, our purpose here is to increase access to charter schools and open new charter schools. That's the point of the program. And, you know, our, our objection, and, and I think MAPS's objection is, is kind of more broad. We are concerned that the department is issuing any rules. But if you look at the actual rule that they issued, it, it very clearly is designed to, to limit the funds to, to the schools. And, you know, there's a variety of aspects of the rule, but one that I think is very sort of obvious and really jumps out, there's a requirement in the new rule that a charter school has to show that it's needed by looking to enrollment of a traditional public school district. So they have to say the traditional public school is overcrowded and therefore we're, we need a charter school. And that's the only way they can demonstrate the need. And obviously anyone who has any passing familiarity with charter schools understands that's not the point. They're not excess space. Charter schools are an alternative to academically failing public schools. That is the point. And, and I mean, that is the kind of sneaky aspect of this, this new rule that really is trying to undermine charter schools in general. 